podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daryl Pace, and sitting next to me is my brother, Byron Pace. Just for the new listeners, we've had uh, quite a few new listeners over the last uh, few months, so just in case you wanted an intro. And if you want to know more about us, there is one or two shows out that is talking just about us. There is one, uh, you'll see the show title, and it's the background story, and that was done with the Journal of Mountain Hunting. So if you want to know more about us, Check that out, or head over to thepacebrothers.com. More info on there as well. This show is the second part of the Northern Shooting Show, so day two. But do not despair, it's completely different to day one. Different topics, different people, and uh, you're going to enjoy it. Because I've just uh, edited the whole thing, and I enjoyed listening to it again. We have topics from uh, our connection to food, and our connection to food in a modern society, and how that's changed. Uh, the affordability and availability of hunting uh, across this country. We also talk about the collaborative working or um, how there should be more collaborative working between organizations or hunting and fishing organizations. Uh, We discuss how important it is to join an organization and support the work that goes on in the background, uh, as well as hunting abroad and the idea that Uh, us as hunters should be supporting initiatives where we have no other incentive other than the good work of conservation where there isn't a hunting incentive for so for example um the chimpanzee uh the chimpanzee sanctuary that we were raising money for on the podcast through our podcast guest which i'm going to talk about just in a second that's a great example and that initiative was started by by ivan carter and there is no hunting incentive there it is just hunters supporting conservation in general Yep, or Barn is going to talk about it in a second. Do you have anything else to add about what we're talking about? No, that's, you, well, I, covered that's, all? that's all the topics I've written. There is some more topics covered, but that, okay. that'll give you a flavour of what people are going to be talking about. We're going to get the guests to intro themselves, so it'll be a surprise, but it's also going to be in the title of the show, so you can see who we're talking to to begin with. But... Uh, Byron has a competition winner, and uh, this was for the Horndy Cup and the Horndy... Yeah, it was a, a beer mug. Beer mug, and it's the, the range, range, bands. range band as well. And it was plucked from Instagram, so there was two uh, lots of... You could email, I think, or you could Facebook, or, and you could Instagram. You just had to tag a friend on yeah, the Yeah, or just email us. We actually had a load of entries. Yeah, we had loads of entries. So this was just plucked at completely random... And it was Jeremiah Strong, and I think the tag on Instagram is Jeremiah Strong twenty nine. We'll try and tag you in it. Uh, I think you're from the USA. We're getting a, an increasing number of people from uh, the United States and Canada listening to the show. So welcome from all parts of the world. I know I, we need to do a thing where we get everyone from the US to tag where they're from because we know we've had listeners from every single state. So it'd be cool if we could get all of them. That on, would be on a very post. cool. Actually. Yeah. Um, quickly on other news, uh, we ha- now have it so that the show automatically goes up on YouTube straight away, uh, just the audio version. So it'll just have the, the album art and the audio version. It means that 
uh, it will always be up at the same time as the podcast. And if there is a video to go along with it, it will be normally up uh, later afterwards, um, days afterwards. It always takes a bit longer to put up the, the video one because uh, they're very large files when you're recording for one or two hours. Um, anything else to well, add? Well, we've got a new competition. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. So this competition we're actually running over the next um, two shows. It is to win a Coldwell shooting rest. Mm-hmm. Now, to enter this, it's going to be very simple, but you have to be attending the um, Schoon Palace Game Fair, the, yep. the Scottish Game Fair at Schoon Palace, which is in uh, t- uh, was the last weekend of this month. Yeah. So, or have a friend. Well, sorry, first weekend of next month, yeah. actually. First or, weekend or of Or have July. someone that can pick it up there. Mm-hmm. If you cannot do that, you will not win. Yeah. You have to be there either the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and pick it up from the Scottish Association for Country Sports tent. Yeah. That's where it will be. Uh, we're doing this for one major reason, is we're not posting it. <laughs> because uh, it's very heavy. It's extraordinarily heavy and will cost us an absolute fortune to post it. Uh, but it's a Coldwell shooting rest. It's, uh, we'll put some pictures up uh, online as we always do. All you're going to have to do is uh, tag a friend. Yeah, or, or email us um, as well. Just email yeah. us and then you'll find out the winner. Uh, Acknowledge that you've seen the post in some way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, we will then, yeah, like Daryl said, it'll, the, everything will be in the description of it and we will let the winner know and then you have to be at the the GWCT Scoon Palace Game Fair. Yeah, on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, and it'll be there to pick up. Uh, this, it's the the sponsor of this podcast, the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Um, so you'll see their logo. If you don't know what their tent looks like, you'll see their logo in the post for the this competition mm-hmm. so that you know which tent to go to to pick it up from. Easy, easy as. Uh, we also have uh, another competition uh, which has been, well, it's it's been running and it will continue to run right the way up until the 28th, uh, well, probably 27th of July, which is to win a pair of tickets for the Game Fair. Now, not the Game Fair that we've just mentioned in Scotland, uh, but the Game Fair, which is at... <laughs> it gets very, uh, very confusing, confusing with the It's title. called the Game Fair, uh, which is at Hatfield House, uh, which is down in England, uh, and that is the, on the uh, between the 28th and 30th of July. So we yep. have two tickets to give away, and it's again, it's a very simple one. Look on our social You're media. You're going to be recording some stuff there, are you? I am actually going, and I will be recording some stuff. I'm going to be on like a live chat show thing with Charlie Jacoby and Field Sports Channel and a panel debate. So, so well. a bit like... This show and the previous Northern Shooting Yeah, a little show. bit. It's just that we'll be on the other I side. I won't be there either, looking after the audio. So, um, if Well, Char- uh, Charlie's in charge. Oh, okay. So I'm going to get the audio off Charlie. Oh, you're not recording it yourself? Well, I will, I'll record some stuff myself. Oh, okay. but, but I'm being interviewed by Field Sports oh, Channel. Oh, okay. That's that's fine. Well, well, we'll see how that turns out and we'll get hopefully get the audio. Um, I will not be there. I'll be at a music festival all weekend watching Stereophonics and and other people sounds like play. fun it but is, I better finish telling people how they can win these tickets oh yeah tell them how uh, which so we already did the, we mentioned this two weeks ago and we have a, we'll, there'll be a social media post on our Facebook podcast Into the Wilderness and on Instagram and it's a simple case of just tagging a friend underneath it and we're just going to pick somebody at random but we'll put up a fresh post um, today or tomorrow so just look out for it on social media and we will pick someone at random and tell you the day before the, the game fair yeah uh I think that's it for today. Yeah, that's it. We've uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting and varied podcast. We are hopefully going to be bringing you some stuff from the CIC 
uh, in two weeks' time, but we're I, also I, I recording was, some new I stuff was, at school. I was thinking maybe we need to do a show in between because we've got so much news and stuff like that going on. Maybe we can push the CIC to, the, to afterwards. To another podcast, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, we've got that coming up, yeah, uh, which was was recorded in Geneva. But we're also doing interviews uh, with the Atlantic Salmon Trust at uh, the GWCT uh, Game Fair and Schoon. And we've also last year we brought you a live panel debate, yeah, um, that was, was shared popular, in the GWCT actually. tent by Cheen and Tate. They they sponsored it. Uh, and yeah, like Daryl said, it was really, really yeah. popular. Now they are, I can't, I don't know exactly, we'll bring you the details probably prior to it of what's going to be discussed this year, but I think it's, it's something to do with the availability and accessibility of land, for land Which use. Which is discussed on here a little bit, yeah. on this this show as so, well, but hopefully this year we've requested for diesel in the generator because there was a problem last year, and I, I think you probably, if you remember the show, we had to kind of fill in blanks ourselves <laughs> of did. what actually happened uh, because someone didn't put any diesel in the generator. There was about a 20 minute it started, <laughs> everything was great the audio, audio was good and then it just cut out 20 minutes so we gave you a rundown and then picked it back up again. <laughs> it's it not worked. ideal but it, it worked. Yeah. Uh, so the same idea, there was some brilliant speakers on last time and I imagine it's going to be the same this year so that will be coming at some point after the start of July as well. Yep, well enjoy the show. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you for everybody who's on the panel today. I think we had a great debate yesterday. I think we're going to have the same again today. But if I'd like to just start off, if we just start off with you, Duncan, at the end there, just tell everybody who you are and uh, we'll come down to, to Jules at the end here. Uh, Duncan Thomas, Regional Director for Basque North. Uh, Dave Ewan, I'm the Publicity Manager for Firearms UK. I'm Rory Kennedy, I'm Chair of the Scottish Association for Country Sports. I'm Kiri and I'm from Athena Sporting. I'm Jules Stoddart, I'm the Head of Policy for the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Okay, I'd like to, to start off this discussion um, talking about something which I think is a, a real issue, not just in the sort of shooting fishing <coughs> community, but just in society in general, which is the generational disconnect from nature and where our food actually comes from. And I'd like to ask the panel, why do you think we've got to this point where we have this really big disconnect with where our food comes from and how it's sourced and what we can do as the shooting community to help reconnect that. I mean, Rory, do you want to start with your, your first thoughts on that? Um, well, I mean, it's a subject that's quite close to my heart because I've got a, a four-year-old boy um, and I've always made the, 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 the point that it's the parent's responsibility and I know that's, that's, that's probably not going to happen in more urbanised sort of areas, but you know, from day one I've told my little boy that he's eating... He's eating cow instead of just the, and beef, uh, and it's an abstract concept. And recently, I put a picture up on Facebook. I shot a deer, and uh, I, I, I skinned it with him helping me. And uh, my wife said, "Oh, you know, don't, don't do that. It will shock him." But actually, it was the first thing he said when he went through. Wow, can I touch it? And then, as soon as I started skinning it, he said, "Dad, can I eat it?" Now, it's just that uh, it's allowing children to understand that process, and maybe it's. it's obviously not everyone has a hunter in the family maybe it's a case of we should be engaging with schools going in and, and actually providing some sort of uh, study packs that uh, assist in that process but you know it's, it's a natural it's a natural disconnect as we've moved into an urbanized society mm -hmm. Kerry? Yeah I, I agree completely and I think we're very lucky in the shooting community to be in touch with where our food comes from um, and obviously on a, on a family level 
I personally employ the similar a similar sort of approach where the kids are concerned, explain to them where it all comes from. But I think I think in a wider society point of your question, you know, looking at where we've gone from uh, the 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 way that the environmental issues generally have come forward has made everybody a lot more sensitive to uh, a lifestyle that they don't really understand in the countryside. So when you look at a lot of green issues, they're based around countryside and wilderness areas. And But the, the people that are commenting on them and they're getting passionate about them that are outside of shooting aren't necessarily um, enlightened to how those areas work mm. and what the infrastructure is all about. And so... A lot of it, I think, is just going to be about explaining to the wider audience that it's not actually squeamish. You know, meat has meat isn't squeamish. Um, it's it's where it comes from. It's what we eat and we enjoy it. And and I think it's just a case of educating people and letting know letting kids know the facts. And if they learn it from a young age, then it becomes normality for them. Whereas if they suddenly wake up in their teens and they realise that the milk doesn't come out of a bottle it comes out of a cow they have a slightly different reaction to that information coming to them Jules what, what can we do or, I mean what has been done recently what, what can we do more as a shooting community to help build that connection well you and I went down to the school in Dumfries didn't we at the end of last year um, I mean Ideally, all of us organisations would be doing all of that kind of work on a regular basis. It's difficult because we need the invite to get in in the first place. And if you've got school communities in terms of the, the teachers and the authorities that are maybe suspicious or not understanding themselves, I, I think it's a mistake to focus just on kits. Actually, we need to be going up into the teenagers, into the young adults, those with disposable incomes, you know, because people are, the demographic in the UK, people are having children later, if at all. So, and they've got, generally speaking, more disposable cash if they're not having kids fairly young. So focus in on them, that's, that's something that we need to do. But just going back on something that, that Kiri said there, we, I think as a society we've lost sight of the fact that humans are apex predators. We're not, and we've discussed this many times, you know, we're not spectators of the natural world, we are participants, we're as much a part of the British ecosystem, I'm talking about Britain because that's where we are, as any other predator or species and we I think some people who are very keen on, on the green issues that you know that you were speaking about f sort of forget that and almost see us as a separate thing and I, if we viewed ourselves as part of the natural world I think that would engender um, a, a greater sense of sustainability for people living their own lives but also to see us as part of the food chain um, and if we exercise that in a responsible way though we have to hunt responsibly yeah so. no, it's a great point I think there is definitely um, a thinking now where we are separate to our environment and the wildlife that lives in it but as we've seen time and time again whenever that is the thought process it doesn't work you need to have we are here as humans and you need to build humans in you've got to factor them into any sort of plan of if you want the wildlife to do well and that is building those connections again something we see time and again is, is particularly with rewilding re and I know I'm slightly diverging here from what we're saying but it is relevant people say oh well we need to bring lynx back and we need to bring wolves and bears back because there are you know they, there aren't any apex predators in the uk well there are <laughs> here we all are just happens to be us <laughs> yeah it does have but what's wrong with that and that that you know if you're going to disagree with the fact that humans should be killing other animals if that's your animal rights rather than your animal welfare point of view because of course those are two different things then 
that that's an ethical question for an individual, and I don't agree that we should all um, go one way just because one group happens to think that it's not right to kill things. Do you still think? I don't know whether that makes sense. But. Dave, in terms of like society that you yeah. see around you, how how do how do people? How, what is your view on how people react to to the food and, and sourcing where where it comes from? Well, I find. Uh, one people are, as you said, are detached because these days we all have lives, we all have jobs. We're not hunter-gatherers as much anymore. So people have got the convenience of going to a shop and buying their food so that they don't see where it comes from. And the, the experience I get is obviously we probably don't need to hunt uh, for su substance. We do it because we may feel it's a better way of life, you know, better source of meat and more natural in some ways. But other people come up to me and they say, oh, you just like killing, you've got a bloodlust, you don't care. And it... But the same people don't have a problem with going to the supermarket and buying meat or even going fishing. I mean, shooting especially is one of the ones that seems to get people. And I, I find it very hypocritical. How to combat it, I don't know. I think it's just to try and educate people, point out how ethical hunting can be sustainable. The, the animals have a good sort of natural lifestyle, if you like, the free range, and it's a vital part of uh, the land management. It's a really complicated area. And, Probably need to attack it We're not going to solve it today. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, Duncan, what's your take on that? You look around this Northern Shooting Show uh, yesterday and today, and it's packed with people that are obviously well-fed. Um, <laughs> people who, who uh, and I include myself in that bracket. And, and, and there's always a risk of preaching to the converted at, at events like this. There's an enormous effort for multi-organisations going out um, to engage with the non-shooting, non-hunting public and I think that it's not just this generation of youngsters, I think you go back another generation ago where a whole generation has grown up with this anthropomorphic, uh, uh, you know, Disney and, and the Disneyfication mm -hmm. of animals where all these animals have a name and a personality and we've entered a position now where we have got a big challenge but in our experience, that if you get the kids out there on a pigeon plucking competition and you take the breast off the pigeon and cook it there and then, yeah. if those kids are hungry, they will eat it. And that's the acid test. I'm not talking about starving people into this. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you, you know, you, t uh, you, you can't resist this stuff. If, you, if, you, you know, if, 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 you, if you're hungry, if you're convinced that it's from a sustainable ethical background, then it's to be celebrated. Mm. And our experience with kids and teachers in schools is that if it's explained right, and it's explained not necessarily from the shooter's perspective, from the fact that it is good for you, it is healthy, then they get it. From the wild food perspective, that's where to tackle it from. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, do, do you think, I mean, open question to anybody on the panel, but. And I'm sure this. I know that this has been done in the past, but do, should we really, re, uh, as a community and as organisations, should we revamp the effort to actually get this in the curriculum? There are some schools which are great. You know, we got invited to the school, as Jules said, down Dumfries. There's, I can't remember the school, but there's that famous one with the kind of wacky teacher who's uh, <laughs> taking people out shooting, his kids out shooting, which is fantastic. But that is not most of the case. Should we be pushing to try and get this as a small part of the curriculum, but north, south of the border, Wales, Ireland? Well, I think it's something, I mean, shooting and hunting is something you could incorporate in so many subjects. You could 
have shooting as part of physical education and you could have the preparation of the game as part of a home, home economics class. Great point, home integ- economics. Could, yeah. You could integrate it so many ways. You could even just shooting physics classes, you know, you could integrate it and make it fun and practical for our students to learn. But the problem you have is there will be people within the education establishment that are scared of guns or scared of hunting or they're dead against it. And that's the people you need to get to agree with uh, to, to introduce it and how you broach them and get them on your side. It's not easy, yeah. That's Duncan. It. Just look at the last week. You've got MasterChef with uh, Lorna Robertson and there was another uh, uh, lady chef on there cooking uh, grouse, cooking venison, cooking pigeon. The appetite is out there to eat game and the chefs you see we seem to have gone, enjoyed a generation of chefs that are celebrating and using it uh, in a very public forum mm. and i think the challenge that we have in the shooting and hunting community is to make that game accessible and affordable where it's available all year round where it's available um you know in in, in packaging that is 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 I don't want to be exclusionary here, but housewife friendly, you know. So when when they go out to shop, whoever's doing the the shop for the Sunday roast, understand what they're looking it. at. Yeah, yeah, they see it, and they they yeah they go out to buy a chicken and come on with two pheasants instead. Yeah, and why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Especially, I mean, this ties into a conversation we were having yesterday on the panel, which is it's incredibly good value meat as it's, well. It's mm-hmm. absolutely fabulous, um, and I think it's it's something that with to people specifically in the shooting world it's obviously very close to our hearts and it, it's, it's something that everybody's passionate about if we look at where we were I remember 15 years ago a good friend of mine was running uh, for one of the big supermarkets was running their meat department and there I was having a drink with him and he said to me oh no he said we never stock wild venison and I said to him why not he said because it's a welfare issue and it's this and it's that and it's the other and, and we, we, our customers wouldn't have it and I said to him how on earth can you say that there's a welfare issue in wild venison because you don't know what the process is? And I explained to him that the venison that was coming out of the field was probably less stressed, less, you know, in, in better condition in many cases than some of the other imported options that were coming from overseas. And actually within two years, they turned it around and they started stocking wild venison. Now, when that came, when that came on board, what our shooting organisations have gone out and done, in conjunction with the celebrity chefs, which usually are at the instigation, again, of our shooting organisations that are representing us, they've gone out and they've promoted it. And if you look at where we've come in the last 15 years with all these initiatives, mm. it's fabulous. I, I think we've got to be very positive about the work that we've done because it's not so much that it's a problem, it's just something that we have been doing as an, as an entity and it's going forward and we've got to ca- keep that momentum going because it's only getting better. Mm. Moving on to, to the next co- uh, topic, but I, I think it is kind of connected, is the affordability of hunting within the UK. We'll talk about the UK because obviously that's where we are. I, is it something that we should um, be trying to make easier for people to access? Is it an affordability issue that we're not getting more people easily in the door? Uh, I mean, I, I throw it I'm open to the table. I mean, Dave, do you well, want to start? I actually just want to just what we are talking about before is to see if we could create an access for people to take part in, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> hunting on uh, perhaps like public land. Mm-hmm. So you can maybe, I think in the States you might get a permit to take six deer over a season. So if people could obtain their firearm certificates and then get this permit 
and again you've checked and so you're trusting them and uh, to be able to go on public land and hunt and uh, take a deer and that might you're probably reducing costs to the taxpayer because the people doing it voluntarily but then you're increasing people's access to hunting and uh, introducing them to the sport and the, the conservation side of it Rory? Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of ironic because in Scotland at the present moment we have a big focus on land reform and public access and public immunity but there's a disconnect between the Scottish government realising that public immunity means public land should be open to people to hunt on and obviously has to be controlled and a tag type system is, is maybe the way to go but uh, I think the likes of Sachs and Basque are potentially part of a solution on that, that there are managed schemes, there's Basque scheme on Aaron, Sachs are looking, well, we've already started a, a sort of similar scheme in Dumfries and Galloway and I think when you have huge amounts of culls and some of the culls, when you see the likes of John Muir Trust where they've, they've conducted culls where they haven't actually had the, the physical resource or so they claim to remove the carcasses and they're leaving carcasses on the hillside why not engage with with the shooting public in a scheme where people would go up there they would value the venison it could be local communities and it could be a solution where Saks or a Basque is, is helping get people through their, their deer stalking certificates so they're actually qualified to go up there and safely uh, manage deer populations so I think that we need to we need to get the Scottish government, and we need to get the sort of the land management charities or conservation charities like John Muir Trust to buy into that concept that deer management and public community go together. Duncan, is it expensive? I mean, it was an open question. Yeah, I wasn't <laughs> saying it was expensive or not. But and, and if you if you Google uh, red trophy red stag or something like that, then then you can certainly find mm -hmm. some stuff that's definitely expensive. Uh, if you want to go and shoot a McNabb, then again, you know, some of that can be pitched and marketed like it's very expensive. But if you look at some of the incredible wildfowling clubs and, and, and deer management groups up and down the country, if you look, we last week we were at uh, Great Broughton um, Pigeon Club, um, you know, hundreds of members costing something like 50, 60 quid a year for a membership which would give you unlimited pigeon shooting which would give you uh, wildfowling access um, inland flighting plus and we couldn't believe this you know walked up driven pheasant and you got a club there that was thriving out in uh, in the Yorkshires and absolutely affordable maybe the organizations need to do more to pitch that out there and get that out in in, 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 in in open forum. Maybe the licensing system is bureaucratic, too complicated, that puts people off, you know, obtaining the hardware to actually go uh, and have the kit to do to do it. But is it expensive? I don't know. Jules? I think it can be, as you said. I mean, it, it, it largely depends on what you're looking for and where you're looking for it, but also accessibility isn't just about price. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I came to shooting, hunting, in the broader concept of the word, from a non-shooting and hunting background, and it wasn't easy for me to get into it at the age of 21, which was the age when I started. And I think there's certainly room for the organisations to do more in helping people who aren't from shooting families to access it. Because if you go, what you were saying, Duncan, about accessibility of eating game, accessibility of actually hunting that game and acquiring it in the first place if you don't want to go to the shop and buy it, 
is a key thing as well. And that will come with normalization as well. I mean, I, I think there's a perception, especially for some forms of shooting or, or broader hunting, that it, it's slightly exclusive or privileged. And that, that is a misconception, mm. as we know. Mm. But I don't think we're very good at, at telling the rest of the world that, that is, that's not the case. So I, there is definitely work to do. Kerry? Um, I, I think expensive is relative. Um, I, I look at what some people, we often compare to ourselves to America, and I look at what some people pay for a single whitetail deer, and I have, you know, I mean, you could, you could buy yourself a couple of seasons very nice pheasant shooting for the mm. price of one deer. So uh, I think it's a relative thing. I think there's a lot of, um, of availability out there um, for, for shooting, I think, as, as someone that runs shooting, I'm also very aware of what the costs and the implications are of putting on the right job with the right safeguards for my clients, um, both from an insurance point of view and all of that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, the, the, world, the world's getting to be more expensive, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to work with, and we're working with SACS, to set up stalking schemes. BASC have had an excellent stalking scheme in place for many years, giving people those opportunities. And we've all benefited from it. The one thing I will say though, is that I'm not an advocate for public land shooting. Um, I've had a lot of exposure to it overseas. And we, we can look at America and say, isn't it great? And it is great, it's America. But some of these single blocks that are available in the States run to hundreds of thousands of acres and we're talking about on the public land because of the, the pressure they get they might have a three or a five day season and it involves going in and operating in a, point, yeah. in a completely different way to how we operate and I know you guys have seen it and you know I've been very lucky to see it but it's it's a it's a unique thing that fits with such an enormous landmass and okay if you've got a block some of these blocks in these national parks are the size of whales you know and we we don't have that ability to deliver that effectively and safely in the uk um and all we're going to end up with is with not enough public land available for the demand and the populations of game will suffer or we'll end up with disgruntled hunters but there is also you know if you look at some of the, the the, the deer management that's done in Scotland, particularly by the conservation charities, is maybe a different beast from how we would do it from a sporting point of view. You know, you're holding back, you're you're trying to develop a herd with the best best heads. Whereas if you look at again going back to the example of Noidart, where Jomia Trust owns something like I think it's 2.5 percent of the Noidart Peninsula, yet quarter of the deer in the Noidart Deer Management Group cull was by Jomia Trust. Now they they've got reasons for that, and I'm not saying what they're doing is actually wrong, but if they needed to cull a very large number of deer in an area, I still think under supervision and I have to be managed in the right way, there is still a role where sports sportsmen could take part. But even more than that, the actual venison, local communities could be involved in that harvesting process. And for them, that venison is a real resource, whereas at the present moment, it's being left to the eagles. Well, it's about local local engagement. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, we have a major issue, particularly in Scotland, with the way that deer are managed, if you want to call it that, because very often it's not management, it's extermination. Um, and that might sound like quite a, a, con a controversial thing to say, but um, it's, it's not actually. If you really understand the deer situation in Scotland, it's not. It's, it's an accurate thing to say. And 
We have local people who are not able to access their local resource and wild game populations, and I mean wild game populations, not managed game populations, are a natural resource in the same way that that water is and soil is and all of these other things that, that conservation organisations and the Scottish Government and other governments talk about. Now, if you've got a situation where contractors are coming in from hundreds of miles away and blatting deer left, right and centre to bring them down to such a low density that the population is barely viable, then that's not fair on the local community if there are people in that community that want to access the deer. Um, and maybe those people don't have the appropriate training or the experience, but there's no reason that they shouldn't acquire that, and organisations like Sachs and Basque are well placed to provide that training and that experience. So, at the moment, the, the situation is not tenable, in our, that's our view as, as Sachs, um, and something needs to be done about it, and we are working towards sorting that out, but it's going to be a slow process because deer is such a contentious issue in Scotland particularly. And I suppose that ties into the conversation we had almost right at the start, which was um, which was about making sure that we build people into the exactly, plan for management. Yeah, people are part of the natural world, um, and to to try and exclude, to try and separate that, it's never going to work because it's it's artificial. Participate, don't spectate. Yeah, mm. it's a good catchphrase. Is, is there any uh, any questions, not necessarily on this topic, but just while the people who are standing here, any questions for the panel on any uh, anything that springs to mind? No? <laughs> I heard a yes there, but I don't know what happened. <laughs> okay. Um, great, yes, I think there was support for all of that. It was all, all sound stuff. Um, right. Okay, I'm going to move on to... The, no, we, this is actually it's the only thing, I think, probably from yesterday that I'm going to exactly cover again, but I think it, it's worthy of touching on again, which is the use of technology in, in hunting, in the field sports world, and where we've come from, where we are today, and whether it's necessarily uh, appropriate, or when it's appropriate. I'm thinking of night vision, I'm thinking of thermal, the things that, you know, every month there's new technology that comes out. Should we, shouldn't we be using it, and where, where is it ethical? Um, Dave, yeah, let's well, start with you if you like. I think if you were against technology, you'd still be hunting with like, sticks and stones. So obviously, <laughs> technology has its place, and we've developed. But I think if you're going from a sporting point of view, then you might want to limit the technology. But if you're doing pest control or uh, large calls, then it perhaps has its place there. From a management perspective. Yeah. Duncan? Really subjective topic, and people will be massive, diverse range of opinions on it I mean at the end of the day is it legal and lawful then the question is it ethical um, is is the is the objective to reduce the population is the objective to have what would describe as a fair sporting hunt um, and I think we've come so far now with some of the technology um, and some of the occasionally you see distance shooting pushed out further and further and further and you start to wonder whether you know at what point does it become fair and safe mm. and, 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 and right um, very subjective subject very very complex um, but at the end of the day the question that I would always apply to it is is it legal and lawful is it fair and ethical yeah. uh, and uh, you know what's what's the end result yeah, fair, fair and ethical, I suppose, is the big question. I was actually, I had this uh, discussion with a, a couple of my friends just before coming on here, and we were talking about technology, and we were saying that we could end up in a situation where we have a generation of hunters coming through 
that a thermal device for spotting becomes as integrated as binoculars are to all of us. In which case, there's something that'll always be massively missing. That incredible satisfaction of seeing a twitch of an ear or a little flash of an antler that is how you identify that an animal was lying down or sitting behind a bush or grazing through somewhere. You don't need any of that skill with a thermal. And that would be removed from the skill of hunting. I mean, I mean that's just... I wouldn't do it. As if I'm, unless I'm doing it for management purposes where you need to go and get a job done for, say, pl a young plantation that you've, you've got an issue with. But if I'm recreational stalking, if we're talking about that, why would I want to? Because it removes some of my enjoyment. But, enjoyment, but as you said, Duncan, it is subjective. But I don't know, Rory, would you like to add any more to that? I think a parallel in some ways to what you're saying is um, I'm a hill walker and there's a whole generation of hill walkers who don't know how to use a compass. Um, <laughs> You know, and I, I think... <laughs> Laughter from the crowd. <laughs> you know, and it's all very well till you're, you're up there at minus 10, your batteries freeze, and, uh, you know, I, I still think there's the grassroots of, or, or the, the skills of, of a hunter that are in many ways have been unchanged for hundreds of years, and I, I think it's a, just personally a bit sad if people, a generation, are, are taking shortcuts effectively. I think in the end, they're actually limiting their overall enjoyment and satisfaction. Jules? I, yeah, I, I agree with what Duncan said, and it depends on your objective, um, and what also you said, Dave, about if you've got a, a if, if, it's, if it's your job to go and cull deer and you need to get that target by that date, then okay. Personally, speaking for myself, I'm quite old school, although my rifle obviously is fairly modern and with a synthetic stock. It's, it, my enjoyment is, is hunting, the actual act of hunting actually hunting actually yeah. hunting yeah when it really winds me up when i see people on facebook going oh what's the longest shot you've ever taken on a deer and people <laughs> are like well i've taken you know 400 meters or 600 meters and you're like well that's shooting mm -hmm. uh, that's not stalking <laughs> um yeah. so it depends on where you're coming from and I, i'm not saying that everyone has to have the same attitude as me i think there's room for everyone and everyone needs to square that with their own individual conscience but yeah, technology is always going to have a role, but it's for the individual to decide, I think, what that is. And if it's lawful and it's safe, yeah. Kerry? Uh, yeah, I, I, I just really echo what everybody said. I think at the end of the day, lawful is one aspect of it, and it's important, um, you know, that night vision doesn't start playing a part in, uh, in deer on a recreational level. Mm. I think there's a real... Um, a real danger of recreational stalkers um, getting, uh, almost picking up the narrative of some of the uh, forestry uh, deer, deer perspective in that respect, and I think that's that's bad. I think the other thing that we've got to look at is not just the fact that we lose some skills, but also the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, is it a bad day stalking if you go out and you haven't shot a deer? Mm. Exactly. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I heard somebody yesterday saying, I'm under pressure to deliver for a client. Well, actually, I'm not under pressure to deliver for a client because my client is getting an opportunity to come out and stalking in some absolutely stunning scenery that we're blessed with in this country. And we're going out there and we make our best efforts to give them a fair chase hunt that is fair for the deer and fair for the client. And, you know, we shoot, we shoot a few deer still, even though we do it in the old-fashioned way. Um... <laughs> But yeah, does it mean that if we haven't shot a deer, then we should have thermal because that have would you have failed been because you haven't shot a deer? Absolutely, no, I don't see it that way. Absolutely not. 
Um, and actually, I turn people away if they want to come and stalk with me and they start asking me, well, what's the success rate and am I definitely going to get one and how many will I get to shoot and all of this. How many points will I have? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, sorry, I actually were fully booked. Thanks. Um, and I, that might sound, that might sound, but it's, I think it's really important that we go out and it, it's a question of respect to our quarry. Yeah. And um, one thing that actually came up yesterday that I, sorry, very quickly, that came up yesterday that I thought was very valid was the fact that using thermal as a way of recovering deer after a shot, we shoot a lot at last light in this country, and that's a really good thing. So suddenly that yeah. item becomes a question of welfare for the deer, and I'm all over that. And I hadn't thought about that until 12 hours ago on your podcast, or 24 hours ago on your podcast. And I think that is something that I would advocate everybody should have one of those little things in their pocket so they can find the deer at the end of the day. Great. Any, any last comments from anyone on the panel? No? Great. Okay, uh, next topic, which is with regard to shooting organizations, generally speaking. And it's in terms of the public perception, maybe even the shooting public perception, they maybe don't realize how much work goes on in the background. And there's a lot of work that goes on in the background where organizations are sitting around the same table working towards the same objectives. But from a public-facing point of view, there's maybe not enough of that. Do Should we see more... Um, more of a case where organizations come together to support you know whatever it may be a particular thing that we're, we're fighting for or support a particular initiative where you see all the organizations together you know up holding hands almost um do you want to start dave actually well that's always been obviously firearms uk came about after i started a petition against the gun license in scotland and basque heavily supported it and then obviously likes of sacks and that got involved and I thought that was great, that's something I wanted to push and I think when you see the organisations unite and get all the members together, it does make a difference in terms of people responding, but as we've seen with later petitions, there's still a lot of the shooting public, or the shooting, sorry, the shooting uh, community that despite the efforts of the organisations, it's their maybe attitudes that need to change, they're, they're not united, if, if it doesn't affect them, they don't care, and the organisations, I think in the last, definitely the last five years at least, have really came together and, and do unite on issues but it's the community itself that needs to start following suit Duncan it's really frustrating because I know exactly how much work does go in behind <laughs> the scenes um, and i uh, very conscious of an immense amount of effort for the organisations to work together there are many issues where we don't all have to go to the same meeting, there are many projects and challenges where individual organisations will champion a specific subject. Um, when the need to work together arises, I've been with Bass five years and I've never really, I can't think of anything where we've, you know, avoided all jumping into bed together, you know, to provide a united uh, front. Um, there's a massive amount of stuff that goes on. Maybe we don't communicate it effectively enough out to the public, to the uh, to, to our respective you know, general members um, but there is an enormous amount of work goes on you know, just the amount of work that goes on into setting up a show like this yeah. you know, this doesn't happen overnight <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's, it's mammoth when I go to an individual police constabulary to tell them let's say to give them some professional feedback some would say almost to beat them up <laughs> It suits me to go with 
another couple of organisations, their representatives, and have three of us sat there, you know, delivering some quite stark or harsh feedback. If I went there with a collective generalisation of membership, it would still be me sat there uh, on, 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 on my own. And um, do we work together? Absolutely. Mm. Um, could it be more joined up? Maybe a bit. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not perfect. Um, but um, I think there's a massive effort that goes on behind the scenes. Mm. I know there is. But in terms of the sort of the public-facing aspect of it, which is so important when we're talking about maybe not necessarily the things which directly um, affect shooters, but are the campaigns that we want to get to educate the public. Is there maybe? Um, a desire or a need for some sort of uh, federation look across the organisations for things like that, Rory. Well, certainly in Scotland, it it, it doesn't it exist to a certain extent. Realm is a sort of group where the various organisations meet to discuss uh, topics and 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 campaign together. And you've seen that recently. We've managed to um, force an overturn of uh, the ban on tail docking for working dogs in Scotland, and mm. that has been mm. a huge effort mm. by all the organisations. And uh, it was actually, I think, the first day I I uh, um, I, I was involved as chair of SACS uh, was at the Moy Game Fair, and everyone was sat around a table. Organisations, if you look on social media, apparently hate each other. It's like the Judea, the people's front, the people's front of Judea, you know. And and the reality is, we are all working together. And and actually, the thing you need to remember as well is diversity across our sport is is huge. And sometimes a little bit of competition is good uh, between organisations because it keeps us all on our toes. But even within each individual organisation, we represent a really broad spectrum. Mm. You know, Basque is the the traditional Wagby side of it, which is very grassroots, wildfowlers right through to. Uh, you know, driven grouse shooters. You, you extend that to sacks. We're representing outside of shooting as well, fishing, uh, terrier work. You know, all these organisations represent a, 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 a load of competing interests at times. So we're not always going to agree. But what we should do is we should get together, and where there's something we do agree on, we should really be campaigning uh, together. As one, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose that's probably the that's probably where I was going with my question, Jules. Well. <laughs> The short answer is, yeah, we should be doing more um, public facing together. But a lot of our work goes on behind the scenes mm. necessarily. Okay, it, it, if in, for the same way that you don't show your hand to your competitor in a poker game, you know, it's, we cannot put every single thing and thought that we do out there publicly because that would not that would be counterproductive. Okay, so that that's one thing. Um, Realm in Scotland, which is the group where all of the organisations sit around a table, we discuss topical issues, we discuss ways that we can um, work together and <coughs> tactics and strategy. And that's really effective. You know, I would like to see that across the UK, not just in Scotland. Um, so there's absolutely more to do there. I, I, I personally think that we achieve more collectively as our separate organisations than we would do if we were one massive body. For, for several reasons, um, we know that governments respond to um, a sort of a, a combined attack, if you like, on certain issues. That if they've got one big organisation lobbying them on a single issue, then that's one party that they've got to deal with, and it's easier for them to deal with one party. If there's lots of us all saying the same thing to them, mm. then they have to pay more attention. So it's it's quite strategic. Um, but is it more about sing, sort of singing from the same hymn sheet? Yeah, and we and we do. And 
as Rory just said, you know, maybe Bass doesn't represent exactly the same demographic and types of field sports that, say, SACS does, and maybe SACS is slightly different to, say, the NGO, and we all do good and valuable work in our, in our different ways. Um, I don't think a formal federation would work, personally, because we all have different management and business structures as well, like, which is another operational issue that people forget about. Um, and I agree, I can't remember who said it, was it you, Dave, that there's the, the tribalism within our own community yeah. is a massive issue. Um, because if you go on Facebook, you will see, you will think, if you don't know any better, that Basque members hate SAX members, and SAX members hate SGA members, and, and it's ridiculous, quite frankly. Um, and it's not true, and it's not representative. And those people that say those things have a disproportionately loud voice because of how social media works, and I know you touched on that yesterday. And that is a problem. Because if, if people looking at, at, at us as a community from the outside are seeing that, what message does that send out? I think for me, the thing that I get really frustrated at is, you know, you go online and you see in a forum, somebody says, I'm looking to renew my insurance, who should I be with? And then it's like, oh God, here we go. The next sort of 50 but posts, it's all negative. it's always the insurance. It's always and insurance. It's people not look, about the insurance. People should look beyond that. But the thing that I really get frustrated at is people always focusing on the difference between organisation and who's better and who's not. What people are ignoring is the fact that about a third of shooters out there are not members of any yeah. organisation. Yeah, exactly. And we're carrying them. Every member that goes out there and they pays their, their fee for an organisation or people that are volunteering, we are carrying these people who are basically yeah. benefiting off the rest of everyone else. Because of all I the just, work that goes, goes on. Yeah. I just wanted to say that, um, and we say this a lot, and I'm sure you say it as well, Duncan, with your team, that as a, as a field sports participant, whatever you're doing, shooting, fishing, whatever, you're, you're unlikely... At your during your career of field sports to need to call on your insurance okay it'll be bad luck it's unlikely but you will always need the advocacy always because it's it's we're never going to be in a position in the UK where every single political party that's likely to get into power is pro shooting or profit so you're always going to need that voice and if you believe that you shouldn't be a member of an organization because that that aspect doesn't matter then you need to go and have a talk with yourself because it, it's it's ridiculous it's just Come on. I mean, we, we use that in sort of the, the opening for our uh, for the podcast. I mean, our podcast is sponsored by the Scottish Association for Country Sport. But we always say we always make this point: if you are not a member of a shooting organisation slash fishing, you should be. And if you're not, you should think about why you're not. And, a lot of and, and, and just you should be a member of something. A lot, a lot yeah. of people out there, and I see it, this discussion on the day my play pigeon club there's a lot of people out there who are a member of probably three, four, I think I'm a member of about four or five That's great. different yeah. associations and you know there's duplication there um, but you know, they all do slightly different things but then it goes yeah. back to the point there's that, that that third out there that are not playing the game. Kiri? Sorry, you, uh, I haven't come, <laughs> so, haven't come to you yet but I think we've had some great discussion there. No, absolutely and I'm, I'm not, these guys are all far better placed on the, on the topic so if I was to if I was to answer it from the point of view of uh, of the uh, from outside of a shooting organisation, I think you know I look at it and I look at the the demographic that we've got is wide and varied. It's very tribal. That's a very apt, apt uh, um, way of describing it. And so I do agree that we should have a variety of organisations representing what is a very diverse um, group of people. And I think that group of people should be aware. And that's probably our biggest weakness as a as a community is the way is our PR our PR to ourselves and also our PR to non-shooting people and uh, if we were going to go out there and say the fact that if we look at how 
the number of shotgun certificates and firearm certificates has gone up in the last 15 to 20 years. I know the work that people are doing tirelessly behind the scenes to make sure people have got access to firearms in this country, getting their renewals done properly, and we've all had those issues. And that's the organisations that are doing it. And yeah, we should all be a member of at least one organisation, preferably more, because the work that they're doing is behind the scenes, and we don't need to necessarily see it blow by blow, but we need to appreciate that it's happening. I just wanted to say that um, we, I think we've kind of focused on our sort of organisations, but the GWCT, mm. the research work that they do, uh, yeah, actually underpins a lot of the work that we do. Um, so if you're if you're going to be a member of uh, an organisation apart from the usual suspects like us, then the GWCT deserves a, an honourable mention. I think. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. Too, yeah. No, we we 100% support that. I quite often mention them in uh, articles I write and we've mentioned mm. them multiple times on the podcast and because they're people it, as yeah well. and there I know quite a lot of the people there and you're right it is a lot of the things that we do are based on the research that they are doing yeah. um, so yeah that's yeah. It's an important it's important the game of wildlife conservation trust. Um, I want to move the focus uh, just for the, the sort of last section here maybe away from this country um, because in, in my opinion it is important if we are classing ourselves as, as hunters that we concern ourselves Obviously, particularly with the things at home, because those are the, the those are the things that are, are close to our heart and the things we have access to, you know, on a daily, weekly basis. But I think we should equally make sure that we are concerned about the things that are happening globally from a, a hunting, fishing perspective, because I think it gives you perspective on what is happening at home. And also, I think that some of the challenges that we face are very much a global challenge in terms of how hunting is perceived. So I'd like to start off with. What we think, well, what the panel thinks uh, the public opinion is on foreign hunting. I mean, if I say foreign hunting, probably your minds are going to spring to Africa. So you're welcome to use that as an example. And maybe the challenges we face about the perception of foreign hunting in this country. Um, Kiri, I want to start with you, although I know you, you spoke last because you, you have a lot of experience hunting abroad. Um, I, I think foreign hunting is becoming more and more open and acceptable. And social media actually has played a big part in that. Um, and yeah, we, we, we do lots of stuff overseas and I think one of the biggest things that I like about overseas hunting is seeing how other people do things and that might be just to understand how they do it um, in their country as a way of comparison but also a way of us learning um, and you know, one of the, Africa is a big thing and it's a very, um, you know, it's, it's something that anybody that's hunted there is generally very passionate about, as I know you guys you guys appreciate, and many will, um, because it's a place that gets under your skin uh, for a, for a number of different reasons, and actually not about the hunting. It's not. It's no, it's got nothing to do with the hunting. I quite have, I often go down there, and I just I might end up shooting a warthog at the end of the week to justify the fact that I brought my rifle down there. <laughs> um, but you know, for me, it's you know, if I close my eyes and think of Africa, I've got. Um, you know, I've got a campfire in front of me. Uh, maybe a nice whiskey. Oh, brandy, bit, brandy uh, for me. Uh, uh, a bit of brandy, yeah, the the, the, the African brandy. And, uh, you know, but generally it's a campfire and some good friends and some good times. And that's the essence of hunting. I think that's why overseas hunting sometimes has that romantic connotation. Um, is it getting more open? Yeah, it's getting more open. It's facing a heap of issues uh, around the place. And I, the one thing that I say where to people is, when you're going abroad, you know, be very, very careful about where you're going because in the UK we're a, ver a very 
generally a, a very honourable lot and it's a small community. Um, hunting around the world is different and you need to be sure that you're not going out there under the assumptions of it operates in the same way that it does in the UK. Uh, there's a lot of really reputable people out there that are great and they're opening those opportunities up and you know do your research check it out and and go and do it because it's memories that will stay with you for a long long time Duncan do you think that it is part of the responsibility of uh, people here as advocates and organization as advocates of, of hunters and what we like to do to pass comment on things that have happened on foreign soil because people are making judgments on us as hunters in the UK based on things that are happening overseas so it really does affect us even if we if it's over the water I mean I, I, I really it pains me to bring the name Cecil the Lion to this <laughs> debating and I don't want to talk about it but we're talking about that kind of situation why do I get Cecil the Lion <laughs> <laughs> we're not talking about Cecil the Lion but a, any kind of foreign hunting issue yeah, I mean but, you could talk about the, the you know the, the, the big very big um, Tusker that was shot in Zimbabwe about six months after Cecil any of these these issues that come up you know we don't see it so much unless you're looking for it. Grizzly bears, uh, the opening up of grizzly bear hunting in North America is an issue there, which I'm sure if some dentist from London went and shot one, it, we would see it in our papers. Do you not think it's the responsibility of, uh, of advocates and organisations to pass comment on it because it is affecting everybody? We don't. I don't think it happens very often. We have a deep down moral responsibility to promote anything that's legal, lawful, ethical, sustainable. We must never forget that hunting, shooting, fishing is absolutely linked to conservation yes. and that the efforts that hunters, shooters, fishers internationally do have actually secured the preservation of many, many species um, over the years and, 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 now, and now is a classic time where that is occurring. Um, I've hunted in Germany, Poland, Africa. Uh, I even left a son out there to end up as a, working as a PH. And, and we went out there to see him, and what really focused my mind was how the conservation was roaringly obvious. Now, do we do enough to promote that? Should we be commenting on issues that are international, I think we should. I think we've got a moral responsibility to support what is legal, lawful, morally right and sustainable. Okay, thank you. Jules? Yeah, well, well said. <laughs> um, definitely. We, I think it actually, this question links around to your first question, which is how can we educate people to actually understand what's happening. Um, Cecil, I mean, uh, that was it. That was horrendous and actually the, the because of the situation was made worse by fame whores like Ricky Gervais and people that just are jumping on issues that they don't understand. It was used as a catalyst for a lot of the stuff that yeah. came after. Yeah. Um, and the reason that people like Mr Gervais are able to get the response that they get is because people don't understand. Okay, so do we as a, Scot as a predominantly Scottish organisation, albeit UK-wide, have a responsibility to comment on issues in Africa? Well, you could say maybe not, but actually it, it, we live in a global society. Everything's globalised now. And the issues 
in Africa might be slightly different in terms of what's actually happening on the ground to here because of, there are different conflicts in Africa, I know, even though I haven't been. But the, the crux of it is the same. It's about sustainable use of resources. It's about educating people that aren't from our world to understand our world or maybe even join it if they want to. Um, so I, I, I think it's a debate that we, that as you said, Duncan, we have a moral obligation to get involved in it. Rory? I think it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I think the thing is Af African hunting is perceived as the apex of our sport and it's a bit like the fortunes of football being uh, rated on the, the, the Premier League and people forget about all the grassroots level below that. So anything that goes on, any bad practice in African hunting is magnified in its interest in the press. Um, and I mean, it's, it's something I've always wanted to do. I'm actively looking at it just now. Um, but going online and looking at a lot of the promotional videos for certain um, providers out there, might add not Kiri, but you know, out, out there just looking at what's around, a lot of it seemed to me very uh, much based on consumerism. And there's people dressed more like they're wearing golf attire, you know, jumping off a wagon, whacking some you know, impressive animal like a games walk. Um, and it just to me, it kind of cheapens the sport. And although I'm, I, I don't doubt for one second, there's still a huge amount of the conservation benefit from that, I think we, we, we should still ethically comment on that sort of, that, that end of the sport. And I think there's parallels in this country, uh, you know, there's the, the question all the time that, that we get asked about, you know, the, the big bird shooting, the big corporate shoots, thousand birds, or, or even the, the sort of trout fishing where you're putting a fish in a pond and the owner's <coughs> wanting it caught, you know, as soon as possible because it's actually decreasing in weight the whole time it's in there. And you know, some of the, uh, the, the, the specimen rainbow trout lakes. I, I think that's an area of the sport we are all duty bound to ethically comment on. <clears throat> I'm really glad that you brought that up because I 100% agree on that. I think that probably one thing we don't do enough of in our industry as, individ as individuals and as a community as a whole is pull up these issues like, like you've just highlighted there and say, do you know what, this isn't good. I mean, we all, we, I say we all, I think for the most part we probably think that but we probably should, shouldn't be afraid of highlighting it and saying this is not good practice and we don't associate with this as a community if we can highlight issues like that. Mm. I, th I think you're absolutely right, um, but I think you've got to be very careful when you're putting out a commentary. And the reason for that is if you look at the Cecil the Lion debacle, um, which... I, was, I, I knew nothing about it because I was in Africa at the time. Um, so <laughs> no one in Africa had heard of it either. Ironically. <laughs> um, but I remember coming back and I, two days later the phone rings um, and I've got a journalist from uh, the Telegraph asking me to comment about this lion. And they said to me, you know, this and this and this has happened. And I said, well, look, I can't comment. Well, you must have some thoughts. I said, well, no, my thoughts, are, my comment has to be based on facts. And at that time, there were no facts out there. And that was the biggest problem with those situations. When you're, if you're commenting about something that's at home and on your doorstep, you have an informed position about it within a framework of what you understand. Now, if you have an uninformed amount of misinformation coming to you from the other side of the world about something that you don't understand and don't have any kind of empathy with, your commentary is likely to be more damaging all round than good. So when I tried to explain to that guy that no, I couldn't comment because my comment's entirely different. If it's a legal hunt, then actually I back the dentist. 
And if it's an illegal hunt, then it's a poaching incident and he should be locked up in an African jail. That, I think, is a great discussion to have, though. I mean, even, even if you can't make a, a, a judgment or an opinion exactly on the topic, by having that discussion, like you've just highlighted, with a journalist, I think that's enough. Because at least that's informing. This is good, this is bad. But it never made... It never, it, so I, I said guess to, it didn't make print. <laughs> so his words to me, well, I need you to come down, I need you to tell me what you think. And I said to him, well, look, I'm not going to be back until Wednesday. I'll tell you on Wednesday. He said, no, I need it by Sunday because it's going to go to print. Well, you know, there's nothing you can do for that. And the problem was that that whole thing blew up globally <laughs> yeah. because it was misinformation. But, and when, and it was never the truth was never put out there. But also, do you not think that a, a lot of the people that were objecting to... Cecil the lion being shot actually didn't care whether it was lawful or not they just objected to this big cat being killed Mm -hmm. because they think that lions are endangered and therefore should never be shot and they don't understand the the dynamics of hunting over there did they object because he had a name when did it have the name (laughs) exactly Mm -hmm. yeah Um, just to just to kind of wrap wrap up on this one although we could keep on talking for ages Um, Dave do you have uh, sort of any any final thoughts on that topic and then we'll get to our last topic yeah I think we we do have a duty to as everyone's been saying if if it's legal and lawful it's part of a properly managed hunt then we should defend it because you you get a lot of people that especially celebrities like Ricky Gervais like Piers Morgan's one always jumps in the bandwagon as well and uh They'll come out and they'll go to. They'll use their status to say whatever they want, and the public who don't know any better will just believe what they're saying and jump on the bandwagon. And it can. You could end up having making the situation worse because it could end up. You see things like petitions going to the British government to put pressure on another country that this is wrong, and then it could have a negative conservation <coughs> effect in this uh, abroad and in this country. So everything has a knock-on effect. So yeah, I just think if it's legal, it's sustainable and it's part of conservation we should defend it and if not yeah definitely if it's wrong okay. speaking. I think that's fair I think you can't say fair than that um, just as a, a very final uh, a very final topic uh, it's something that uh, my brother and I think that we should certainly do more towards and we're currently um, running a campaign on behalf of uh, Ivan Carter through the podcast which is, was, is to raise money for a chimpanzee sanctuary in the Congo uh, where the chimpanzees basically they're often there because the the group and the mothers are are killed because they want baby chimps for pets. Now this is um, Ivan Carter. If you for the people in the audience, if you haven't listened to his podcast, search podcast into the wilderness on in your podcast app. Find Ivan Carter, fantastic chap, and he, he will inform your world views absolutely. Um, but he's made the point recently, uh, which is what made us think about it, is that we as, as hunters, if you use that collective term, should focus a little bit more from time to time on things that we gain no direct benefit from. The vast majority of things that we defend, we defend on the basis of, you know, we are hunting something for the greater conservation of it. There are conservation spin-offs to us hunting this or looking after this environment normally for something, whether it be grouse or whether it be deer. It's very rare that we support anything that we have no incentive behind at all. So the gorillas was a fantastic example. No one is hunting gorillas apart from people who are not hunters, they are poachers. Mm. And so we've been, uh, we've, I think we've, thanks to generous donations from our podcast listeners and people here at the show um, who have been giving us money over the last uh, two days, I think we have made our, we're very close to making our target of 660 pounds, which is to look after one chimpanzee for a whole year. This is something that we've taken upon ourselves, on ourselves, on the back of, of Ivan bringing it to our attention 
to support as hunters. We are hunters. I love to hunt. My brother loves to hunt. But this is something that I think we could really get behind. And I think it's something that the public can also get behind. And for them to see, here are some hunters. Okay, I don't I really understand hunters. Why do they like to kill stuff? But they're getting behind something that I can understand as a general public. So my question after that rambling is that should we, as the shooting community, as the hunting community, as hunters, be doing more to support causes of conservation where we actually don't have any direct benefit off the back of? Um, Rory, do you want to start in the middle? It's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, I think there's some benefits from it. I think um, you know Ivan's obviously meshed in the whole African scenes. So I think it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a resonance there with what he's doing. To tell the truth, I mean I think that the greatest impact that we can do is is really the sort of projects that GWCT does, where it shows that where you have a grouse moor, where you're managing it for grouse, you've also got loads more plover, you've got loads more uh, lapwings, curlew, all, all the wading birds that are in decline. And to me, that's as powerful message as you need. We are the best conservationists. We, we, we certainly manage far more conservation land in the UK than any of the inverted commas conservation bodies put together. And what more powerful message you, you need to get? We just need to be able to get the message out to people. And I suppose it's, it's the press filtering it because that's a great news story. But how often does it get reported? Really, Duncan? What's the real objective? Is it to convince the general public that we are all really nice people? <laughs> uh, or is it to genuinely do some real good for projects like this? Um, I think that we should champion any good cause. We, we know we're preaching to the converted here to some degree in that we all know that the shooting community is a pretty decent set of people. Um, and, well, we, we would support it. I'll retweet it. I'll back it. I'll, you know, I'll, 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 I'll like it. I'll share it. Um, and there is a definite objective to get out there. And e e equally, if we if we support something like this, then we, we are getting out there. We are getting a better coverage. And sometimes it is useful to support a cause like this. But as long as it's for the right reasons. Agree. Yeah. And I think. Probably what, what I did. Posted cheap PR. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with you, and it is really important that we do not do that. We are we are above that. Mm. I hope as mm. a, a shooting community. Mm. And I think probably what I didn't say was that we should care. If we claim that title, I am a hunter. I should care about everything. I had this discussion last week at the CIC conference, and someone was saying, "Oh, well, you know, <clears throat> you wouldn't uh, go out and shoot if you didn't enjoy." It. I said, "No, I wouldn't." But I take enjoyment out of a lot more things. I I care about the meadow pipit that I see sitting on the fence post and I would care if it wasn't there. I can't hunt it, but I see it when I'm yeah. out stalking. Yeah. So uh, this is kind of what I'm getting across. Uh, Jules, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm just mulling over how to, how to answer that question because if, if we're looking at it from our position as hunters, um, we, we, perhaps we have a better understanding of why conservation activities are important because we're, we're in it. Um, and if we're hunting wild game populations and also you know, the release birds that we put down benefit from the same management work. So we, we actually, we have a tangible, um, you know, we, we, we can see it. Yeah, we can see it. But so yeah, I've got, we, I think most, most of us do support 
conservation of non-quarry species because they're part of a robust ecosystem. And if you're looking at it as an e at an ecosystem level, every species has its place. But the other, th the reason why I was mulling it over um, is because I think all of us actually have an obligation in in the in the year 2017 when there are seven and a half billion human beings on this planet we all whether we're hunters or not have an obligation to live in the most sustainable way that we can um and i know that's probably slightly a, a wider picture and I'm, I'm taking that very relevant though very relevant but, but it is relevant because if if you're if if you're a a vegan, for argument's sake, um, and you think that that then gives you carte blanche to go off and have six kids on an already overpopulated planet and you don't buy biodegradable bin bags or whatever. I, do, do you see what I'm getting at? There's, if, if you're going to live sustainably, then you need to be looking at the bigger picture. And actually hunting is, if we do it in the responsible way, it is sustainable because we're, it's, about, it's about harvesting surplus individuals from a robust population. Um, I'm probably going off slightly at a tangent here, but you know, with that many people on a planet where the carrying capacity, a generous estimate of it is half that, half the population that we currently have, every single person has an obligation to live in a, in a, in a, in a sustainable way, and that means having a conservation mindset. It, that's my view. Yep. No, I totally agree, but, and uh, not, not but, but, Hunters can lead from the front by showing yes, that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, Dave? I, yeah, I just pretty much agree with everything that's been said. I mean, I think because we hunt, certainly since I've taken up hunting, I've had a greater understanding of conservation and the environment. And obviously, you get taught at school, but since actually going out and hunting, <coughs> I've realised about the balances of things. And I've, I've tried to, like, my garbage, I'll try and grow more fruit and veg now. And I do take an interest in the countryside. So I think naturally, because of that, we would support things like that because you know we re we do realise we have a well we are hunters we have a responsibility we're capable of knowing that we can do damage and we are responsible and it's just part and parcel we will just continue to do that cons uh, with a conservation mindset. Right, can I just ask you yes, absolutely, Rob. Yes. Now I was born in Africa, right? To me, this anti-hunting thing seems like a very Western thing. You go to Africa, you're a hunter, and nobody questions it. Mm. It's a diff different culture there, though, isn't it? I mean, well, my mother's mm. a vegetarian, vegan, what you call it. She never questions my hunting, never questions my father's hunting. So it's, to me, it feels like a Western thing. You're a vegan, hunters shouldn't be doing it. I don't get it. I still question, no. I think it's becoming more global. I mean, I think yeah. probably in terms of the, the view of hunting, I think Africa's probably one of the anomalies there. I know because I spend a shed load of time there. But uh, but yeah, I think it's probably one of the anomalies, uh, probably a bit like New Zealand, I would guess, although I haven't spent any time in New Zealand, where it's much more accepted. Much more accepted. But yes, I, I take your point. Yeah, it, It's something that probably has come from, from the West and America and, and coming across and over in Europe. Why, could I just try and address that. I think a problem we have is, as you say, in the West, we're comfortable now. We don't have to hunt to survive, by and large. So yeah. our societies aren't aware of food. They go to the supermarket. So when things happen abroad, they don't realise that people abroad, they may be more in touch with nature. Maybe it is about survival. It's about land management. And I think we get too much influence in what goes on in our countries because our urban populations haven't a clue about it. But they get upset about yeah, things. I've been there long enough. I mean, I grew up today. Yeah. So I've Sort of seen more up here, that, but nobody ever questioned it. You went, 
You just did it. <laughs> uh, it's a big problem. I think we have it anyway. Yeah. Kerry, final word on the on the the topic. Uh, I think um, should we comment on uh, chimpanzee charity? support? Oh, support. Should we support should, initiatives as, like that? So, as 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 hunters, should we support an initiative like that? No. As human beings, we should. I don't. Uh, hunting is part of what I do, and it's part of my identity, but it's not my entire identity. And I love. And I, I've known Ivan for years, and he's a great mate. And he's a he's a probably if I had to pick a person on the planet that's doing more for the wildlife in this world, there's very few people that are out there doing what Ivan's doing, and um, very few people would know much of what Ivan's doing beyond what they're seeing on the TV shows and the like. So my point is, hunter or otherwise, is kind of irrelevant. We. If we love the planet, if we love the wildlife we share this planet with, then as human beings, we should all be getting behind saving whatever is damaging to that ecosystem. Yes. And and so at some point, and this is this is something that as hunters I think we've we've got to we've got to remember is that at some point it goes beyond the hunting. And yeah, say you know, it's the rainforests, it's the diversity those ecosystems have got benefits to our human population far beyond anything we've discovered now. You know, you look at what medically is available in the Amazon and things like that. It goes beyond just hunting. And what we should do as hunters is let non-hunters understand the things that we understand, the peripheral benefits of the conservation work we carry out for hunting purposes on a grouse moor and the peripheral benefits that that has for many other species on a grouse moor. Yeah. And it's the same thing that organisations like the RSPB should take into account. And then their objectives would be met far better if they took into account the fact that they've got a heap of foxes and three stone curlews. <laughs> and, but they want a natural balance, so they're going to let the fox eat the stone curlew mother off of the nest. So what we should do as hunters is get that understanding and that reality that we all know about out there um, but as humans we should all be hunters or otherwise we should all be getting behind um, this kind of work that Ivan's doing for non non quarry species yeah very well said well I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out everybody who's on the panel thank you very much to some of you who've been sitting there the whole time I'm incredibly <laughs> impressed that you've been sat <laughs> yeah. round of applause to you all and um, for those people if you don't know but you, you might do already if you want to listen to the interviews we did yesterday different topics um, different panel then you'll check it out on the podcast go to any of your podcast apps search Pace Brothers or Into the Wilderness either will come up and there's about 50 podcasts to listen to with uh, some fantastic guests on it so definitely go and check that out uh, thank you very much for everybody who's here Well, thank you very much for listening to the show. Remember, enter all of the competitions. And if you ever want to contact us, sling us a message on Instagram, Facebook, uh, or a very easy way of emailing podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. It is always in the description, the email address. We do get a number of emails from all of the, our listeners. So thank you for keeping in contact with us. I'm just going to ask everyone to uh, go and rate 
um, the podcast on Facebook. You've mm-hmm. done it recently, Daryl, on, on social media, asking people, and we've had a lot of five-star yeah, ratings, which is awesome. Uh, if all our listeners here would like to fire over to Podcast Into the Wilderness on Facebook and go and give us a rating which you think is fair, that yeah. would be great. Uh, but uh, also on iTunes. On iTunes, especially, please, from the because I discovered this other day, so ratings on iTunes are only specific to the country that you're in. Really? So... Oh, we! I figured a way to see all the countries we've gone, but we've got loads of reviews from the UK, understandably, because that's where we're from. Uh, but we only have one or two from the US. Mm. So, if any of our listeners from the US or Canada, could you please leave us a review? In fact, it doesn't matter where you're from, anywhere else in the world, can you just leave us a review? But particularly the US or Canada, please, can you leave us a review, mm. and then we can give you a shout out on the next uh, show if you're doing that. We are going to be uh, at the GWCT Scottish Game Fair the first weekend in July. Come and see us if you're going to be there. Of mm-hmm. course, as we said at the start, we have the competition running to win a Coldwell shooting rest, and you have to pick it up from that Game Fair. And we are going to be on our spon- the, the sponsor of this podcast is the Scottish Association for Country Sports, and we're going to be on their stand, um, certainly for the Friday and Saturday, and that is where you can also pick up the, uh, the prize. Yeah. So that is where you will be able to find us most of the time. We're going to be dipping in and out to meetings, but we'll be a bit around. We'll probably have some of our t-shirts and... Oh, of course. One mug. I think we've got two mugs I left. I think we've got two mugs left. We've sold out of uh, nearly everything, and the, the T-shirt stock is very low as well. So we're, getting, we're going to do a redesign of the mugs and the T-shirts mm, and cool stuff, order actually. a new lot of stuff, and we're hopefully bringing some other things into the shop as well uh, very soon. Uh, it's time. We, we never have enough time to uh, to do all these things. But if you do come and find us, we will try and furnish you with a Hornady hat. Yep. Or something yeah, that, like that's that. Instead, we'd managed to do it at the Northern Shooting Show. A Give whole, away a lot of hats. whole bunch of people got um, Hornady and, and CZ hats. So if you're lucky, you can get one at the Scoon Palace Game Fair. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something else. Oh, um, you would have heard at the, the end of this uh, podcast, I probably should have said this at the beginning, uh, apologies for some of the audio wasn't our fault also at the very end there was uh someone in the audience speaking to us i tried to boost them as much as possible they did not have a microphone so hopefully you could hear them but i'm pretty sure you could hear them uh fairly well but it was only the last two minutes of the the show anyway uh also we currently have problems with stitcher uh the podcast app for some reason some people can't access it still figuring out why but as an alternative for now uh we are now on Acast. we're also on podbean we're also oh, on did you get us on podbean yeah I didn't even pod addict as well that was a request from uh another person to get on pod podcast addict or is it pod addict or something like that one, one of those things they're all android um store apps so there is many other alternatives to the stitcher app we should probably put a social media post on that because I've just realized that uh, you telling that's going to be absolutely useless for anybody listening to Stitcher because they might not be able to listen. I know, but there is alternatives. <laughs> yeah, anyway, there is alternatives. So maybe they could fi- find... We'll, find put, we'll put up a social media post to make sure nobody's missing out. But yeah, yeah I don't know what's... Uh, Stitcher's just not working properly for some reason. It's their end. It's not our end. Yeah. So um, we... The old shows are all there. It's just the new ones for some reason. Yeah, very strange. Uh, but that's not for you to worry about. That's for us to worry about. So, uh, but join us again in two weeks' time, and remember, tell 
everyone about the show because uh, word of mouth is the best way to spread uh, spread the show. Uh, we've got some very well, we like to think some very educational uh, shows and, and we, brilliant guests, brilliant guests as well that deserve being listened to. But join us again in two weeks' time. Yeah.